So if you're new or visiting today, um, we're walking through the book of Revelation, and so how we roll most of the time here at Algon Bible Church is uh, we'll start at the beginning of a book, and then we'll walk right through all the way to the end of the book, right? And so uh, we're just, whatever God's Word says is what we say. So if you're new or visiting, you can go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 3, that's where we're going to be as we walk through Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, and... um, Mr. Lane is going to read for us this morning. There you go, brother. That was my fault. Sorry. (laughs) And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thanks, Lane. Um, let's pray. Whoops, I'm jumping. All right, let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, I thank you for this day, the day that you have made, and we thank you for this book of Revelation. As we've talked about earlier, uh, this is where you are revealing to us not only our King and Lord and Savior, your Son, Jesus the Christ, but also the things that are to come to pass. So God, we ask that as we look at your word, that we would not only um, understand the future of these events, but we would look at the context of when this book was written, and that you, by your Holy Spirit, would help us to apply what was written then, what may be for the future, to us today. God, we thank you that you are here with us, that you are alive and well in us by your Holy Spirit, and that you give application of your holy word. We thank you for this gathering together of the body of believers known as the church, your bride, and we ask your blessing upon us today. It's in your name we do pray. Amen. Um, So also, I'll just say, if you'd like to read uh, like that, uh, then just come and sign up here. And I actually, uh, will you grab that and pass that around too? And people can can do that. I I was pointing to somebody else, but since you're there, Lane, go ahead, man. Thanks for my mic. I appreciate it. It's not going to fit in that one. Here you go. It goes right there. so yeah, if you are interested in reading also, uh, I'll bring the mic to you. You, can, you don't have to get up in front of anybody. You don't even have to stand up. He was just above and beyond, man. You can, you can just sit and read there. But let me give you a little bit of background on this uh, city of Philadelphia here before we jump into what I've, I believe God's talking to us about today. So the first is this. Uh, Philadelphia, now I'm reading some of these that I'm getting because uh, I just want to make sure that I get it right. Okay, but uh, Philadelphia was named after the king of Pergamos, uh, Atellus Philadelphus. So you can probably understand where they got the name, right? It's a very humble thing to name a city after you. But 
Uh, he built the city, uh, the word Philadelphia meaning brotherly love. And he actually built the city uh, to, out of respect and honor and care for his brother. And so the brothers of Philadelphia built the city of brotherly love. Kind of cool, huh? Um, so this is the only one of the seven cities of Revelation that was not a major city in the province of Asia at this time. So this is kind of a secondary city, a third tier city, as far as the ones that are mentioned in the rest of these seven churches. However, it was on the southern highway connecting Pergamum and South Asia Minor, making it strategically important to settlers and military personnel. Uh, this earned it the title of Gateway to the East because there was so much traffic that was coming through there, right? Philadelphia was located roughly 20 miles southwest of, the, of a volcano in the region, prone to seismic activity, and an earthquake in AD 17 badly damaged the city, prompting the emperor at the time, Tiberius, Caesar, right, to forego taxation for five years. Don't you wish that was happened here? I mean, not the earthquake, but the taxation thing, right? And so forego taxation for five years that they could rebuild what they needed to rebuild, okay? Um, so they, as they rebuilt, that tied them very closely to Rome. As you can imagine, they were very thankful that Rome stopped all the taxation so that they could rebuild. And so they uh, really were fond of Rome. So also, because of the volcanic activity historically in that area, as you might imagine, the soil was very rich, okay? So it was a very good, nutrient-rich soil. The economy at Philadelphia consisted of cultivation of grapes, which they made into wine, which is probably why its main pagan temple, its main pagan deity that it would worship was the cult of Dionysus, which is the god of wine. So you may have heard of Dionysus from, I don't know, um, TV or movies or something like that, or, or maybe, maybe you just know about Greek stuff, and good for you. But uh, the cult of Dionysus, which is the god of wine there, okay? So, some other housekeeping stuff that you guys were asking me about, and then, we'll, and then I promise you we'll, we'll move into stuff. Three things. The first is this. The angel of the church of Philadelphia. Somebody asked me recently, what does it mean when they say to the angel of the church of whatever? Because they've got, they've got these, all these things. So here's what that means in my opinion. And you are happy, I would welcome you to do other research and find out your kind of stuff and where you stand on that. You ready? Here's where this works in, in my mind. The term angel in Greek can also be used for messenger. So it's this idea of a messenger. So then you have to decide what it's talking about here in the context of how it's talking. Now, if you remember, if you go back to the beginning of Revelation, what they were talking about there is, uh, so this is the revelation of Jesus Christ given to the angel, which is then given to John, and then John's going to write to the seven churches, right? So it was kind of this, this chain of revelation to different beings that would then deliver it finally to the church. So the question then is, for me and for you. So I'm, I'm going to answer the question without answering the question. Sorry. The answer to the question is this. Is this, this angel, is it the angel is a messenger that then Jesus is revealing this to, and then that angel is then revealing this to John, who is then writing to the seven churches, like it talked about in the first chapter of Revelation. Is this angel, maybe it should be translated messenger, and so it's to the messenger of the church of Philadelphia. So then who would that be? Would that be to John, or would that be to the pastor of that main church? Or does it mean that there's actually a, a kind of a, a guardian angel over the church of Philadelphia? 
I don't know. Uh, But here's what I think. I think it's likely to think that each church or, or each part of the world has a specific angelic body that is responsible for it. Why do I think that? Well, I think that because of the Old Testament where David, uh, or I, think it's, I think it's David, no, it's Daniel, was praying and the angel came to him and said, hey, I would have been to you sooner except for the prince of Persia withstood me and so it took some time, but as soon as you were praying, God gave me the answer and I was supposed to bring it to you. Now, what was that angel doing? He was bringing a message. That angel is a messenger from God and he couldn't get to David fast enough. Why? Because there was opposition. Scripture tells us we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. How can you be a prince if you don't have a land to be a prince over? Are you following me? I know I'm talking fast, okay? So in theory, each church has the potential to have a a certain angel or maybe a group of angels who are managing it, for lack of better terminology, right? Um, And then also then opposition. So I believe uh, that Allegan as a whole has both a negative spiritual influence from some kind of a demonic force that is the principality or the power over Allegan or maybe over Van Buren or, or however that works. And it also has messengers, angels that are overseeing his church, his churches in this area. So not only his church as a universal sense, right? All those who are truly believers who belong to maybe different churches, but also Allegan Bible Church individually also. Now I lean more towards a more of a, like a, an Allegan, so the, 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 mess, the, the angel of the church of Allegan because of these, the angel of the church of Philadelphia, right? It doesn't say the angel of the church of Allegan Bible, or it wouldn't be Philadelphia Bible Church, right? Does that make sense? So it's the, all the churches in Philadelphia, which was this whole city town area. Does this make sense? So to answer the question, for those of you who may be wondering, who is the angel of the church of Philadelphia? I don't know. It's either an individual angel that is kind of over that section, or they're using this as the word messenger, and it gets muddled in the translation for us, and so it's talking about a pastor and elder. Now, does that mean that you have to question God's word? No, absolutely not, because I don't think that that is is the main point of what he's writing to here, but somebody asked, and so I wanted to let you know. Another question I wanted to cover real quickly is this. Somebody had asked me uh, about, and there's, there's a famous hymn I don't remember the name of it, I should have looked it up, about uh, having mansions in heaven, right? Um, I do not believe we will each have individual mansions in heaven when we get there. Uh, I believe that uh, we will have all of eternity. You can probably build whatever house you want to build. I don't think that's a problem. I don't think having a house is sinful. I don't think having a huge giant house is sinful. I think it's all up to what you will want to do for that time period when you're there. And I'm going to reference a book, okay? So if you are interested in having an idea of what... Now, I'm not saying... so. Understand what I'm about to say. The book I'm going to reference is not Scripture. It's a book that an author wrote. He gets a lot of what he gets out of Scripture, and I tend to share a lot of the ideas that this author also has. Okay? So if you want to read it and then talk about it afterwards, that'd be great. It's called Heaven. It's by a guy named Randy Alcorn. I've, I've talked about it before from the pulpit. I do recommend it if you have questions about Heaven, and I'll tell you why it ought to be something that's on your reading list at some point. When I was a little kid, I thought, I said, well, heaven sounds, now I do not mean for this to be heretical or blasphemous or anything. When I was a kid, I thought heaven sounds boring. What it sounds like to me is we're all going to be like moth people, right? We're going to stand all dressed in white. We're going to be looking at this shining light and we're just going to stand there for all of eternity saying, oh, 
Like, I thought that's what heaven is. I thought that sounds boring and lame, but you know what? Like, I don't, but it sounds better than burning for all eternity. So I pick, I pick the mindless worship of the light. Like, that's what I pick when I was a kid, right? Now, that's not a Christian decision. That was, that was a child trying to understand this thing. I have grown in my theology. I have grown in my understanding of scripture. I have grown in my understanding of who God is and what he wants for us. So I would recommend reading a book like Heaven by Randy Elkhorn because I also, a lot of what he says in there, I would agree with him with that, I think, is what the new heavens and the new earth is going to consist of. So without further ado then, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, he says, to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who asks, or I'm sorry, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So Philadelphia here is the city of brotherly love. Remember, we just talked about that before I went off on my tangents. So it's the city of brotherly love. This was a good church. This is one of the only churches in these seven churches that doesn't get walloped with some kind of big negative thing that they're misdoing or they've dropped the ball, okay? So that, um, to me and to you, I hope, what that should make you think of is, what is it this, this church is doing that I need to glean from in my individual Christian walk that I need to put into place? And how can we corporately also be this kind of church. That, that's immediately what I think of when I read through this. And I'm like, they don't have anything really negative said to, to, to them about it. I really want to know what it is. Uh, just like we can learn, okay, what are the negative things that we're saying here? How can I avoid those things? That would be the put off, right? So here, what are the put ons that we can do? Well, brotherly love was this church. Brotherly love is a true, uh, true uh, fruit of being a church. And so John 13, 35 tells us, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's the idea of brotherly love, affection for one another, care, concern for the body. It is weird for people to come into a building like this and have not a whole lot of things in common, tons of different life, tons of different age, tons of all that kind of stuff, and then still genuinely care for one another. It's weird. I like being weird. I hope you do too, right? And so uh, next then it says in Hebrews 13, 1, let brotherly love continue. This is supposed to be what we are practicing, brotherly love, this Philadelphia. Romans 12, 10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor, right? So you shouldn't just be opening the door for the old lady to go into the, the Walmart super center. And I guess you don't have to do that now because they just magically open themselves. You know, when I was younger, I don't know if you knew this, at Meyer, they might still be there. Kids don't do this. At Meyer, on the top of those doors, there's a switch. You can actually shut those off. And so me and my friends, we'd run in, you know, and you, you know how you like, you pretend to like hit the thing. We're like, ah, switch is off. You're hitting the door. <laughs> you know, don't do that. Don't do that. Outdo one another by showing honor. Open the door for one another. Turn those switches back on, right, is, is what the Bible's paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing what this says. Purify your souls by your obedience to the truth. For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So the question I have is, what can we learn from this brother-loving church, this church at Philadelphia? How can we be a brother-loving church? How can I be a brother-loving Christian? How can you be a brother-loving Christian? That's the question that I have. So if you're a note taker, the first blank for you is how a brother-loving church sees Jesus. I think that's the most important thing. Because how you see Jesus determines on how you see one another. How you see Jesus determines on how you implement what it is that he's telling us. So, firstly, if you have a copy of God's Word, I'm, I'm not going to put the Revelation back on there right now. Uh, we're going to be going to other verses, so I'll have the verses that I'm turning to up there. 
But if you have a copy of God's Word, I know that you're looking at Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. It says, to this church, the words of the Holy One. So the first thing, a brother-loving church sees Jesus as the Holy One. He is separate and other than us. Now, yes, he was fully man, but he was also fully God. And so we have to have a reverence and an awe. Uh, this is where Jesus is using this title for himself. And we see it so often used for God, the Holy One of Israel, right? So here and other places, obviously, in the New Testament, Jesus has already equated himself with the Father. We need to make sure we understand that too. I don't know about you, but I'm tempted in my prayer life sometimes. I don't, I don't feel like I always pray equally. Does this make sense? I pray to the Father for a lot of things. I pray to Jesus for less things. And I pray to the Holy Spirit, it seems like almost for nothing. And I think that that's wrong. I think we ought to change the way that we view the Trinity. If they are all God, but also all different, I think, I think our prayer life should reflect that too. By digress. Jesus here tells us he is the Holy One. We ought to see Jesus as the Holy One. Isaiah 40, 25 says, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. This is God the Father saying that. We need to have a big view of God. I told this to you guys before. I'll probably say it again, so forgive me for recycling illustrations. But, you know, I'm only one guy, and I've only lived so long. I'll have more the longer I'm here. But here's the deal. Uh, when I was down in Kentucky, I talked to the college group down there, and I told them, hey, if you want to spend today, just simply today, thinking about the bigness of God, you could spend all day just continuously thinking about the bigness of God. What do I mean by that? Well, if he knows every hair on my head, I wonder how many hairs I actually have on my head. If he knows every hair that I have on my head, does he know every single, well, surely he knows every single feather on every single sparrow. And he knows every single sparrow before it falls to the ground. And we are more uh, worth more than even the sparrows, right? Well, does he know then every nut that falls from every tree and where it goes and what squirrel gets it, and where they bury it and where they can find it and why they don't find it when it grows that tree? Are you serious here? You could spend all day thinking of the bigness of God and what he knows and what he can do and what he's able to to do for you and what he wants to do through you. Habakkuk 3.3 3 says, God came uh, from Teman and the Holy One from the Mount Paran. Selah, his splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. So this idea of being holy, this Holy Ones, is also this idea of purity, of righteousness, of spotlessness. We cannot comprehend fully I don't think we will for all of eternity. I think that's part of the joy of eternity is continuing to dwell on and find out more of who God is for all of eternity. And this is the same God who John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Which leads me to the next thing. As a brother loving Christian, we also need to see Jesus as the true one. It's one thing to see him as the Holy One, to think of him as other than us. Maybe we don't struggle with thinking of him as other than us. Maybe what we struggle with is, is thinking, man, he is so other than me, then how can I ever approach him or talk to him or come to him? He is so other, there's no way he could ever love somebody like me. But the Bible also says he is the true one. He, uh, true, in other words, for that genuine, faithful, trustworthy, honest, and if Jesus said he came to save such as us, then guess what? He did. If Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, then you can. 
If Jesus says, right, then it is the case. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So not only is he holy, but he is true. He is the one that we can find our identity in. He is the one he, we, we can find answers to our most perplexing questions in. He is the one who has the, the ultimate answer for why we're here and what we're doing and what all the stuff is that's happening in our lives. Jesus told us, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Which also means, Christian, we cannot have a view of Jesus that is anything other than it's Jesus or nothing. You see, Christians, sometimes we get accused of being um, non-inclusive. And that's both true and not true at the same time. It is true that we cannot be inclusive of every single other world religion. It has to be the case. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So either that is true or that is a lie. C.S. Lewis, I've talked about this here before, but C.S. Lewis said Jesus is either a liar a lunatic, or he's the Lord. And what, what he means by that, what I've said by that, you probably know this, you're sick of me telling it to you, but it's a, it's a good one, you, can, you should remember this. He's either knows that he's not really God and he's lying to us, and therefore we should not follow him. Or he's a lunatic, he's crazy. He thinks he's God, but he's really not, and therefore we should not follow him. Or he is telling us the truth, and therefore anything other than that cannot be so. And I would encourage us, that's the way that the Bible presents Jesus. And so he is the true one. He is genuine. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. He's honest. And so also when he says, I am the way, the truth, and life, no one comes to the Father through me, we can also think of that on the other way. Everybody who comes to Jesus will then also meet the Father. Everyone who comes through Jesus has a relationship with the Father. Everyone who asks for salvation through Jesus, can have their sins covered by him. He is the true one. He is reliable. He is dependable. He will never fail. And it doesn't matter how I feel or how you feel or what we've done. There is nothing that can keep us from the love of Jesus Christ. Amen? And also, then, if you doubt that, he goes on to say, he is the mighty one. In the scripture there, in Revelation 3, 7, it says that he is the one who opens and no one will shut, the one who shuts and no one opens. You know, if God says, let there be light, there's light. If God would say, let there be darkness, guess what there would be? Darkness. He is the mighty one. Revelation 1.18 says, and the living one, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and to Hades. He's the one who shuts and who no one, uh, and if he shuts it, you can't open it. And if he opens, then no one can shut it. This is a text where I get the assurance of my salvation because I know that Jesus has said, all those who the Father has given me, I will lose none of them. So if he has opened the door for me, it does not matter what Satan does to try to close it. He can't. Satan can be as big and as bad as he wants to be, but if Jesus says the door is open, guess what? You can come in. That's also why he says, hey, if anyone knocks, 
I will answer, right? Come to me. If, if you knock, I, I, it will be open to you. This is the idea of absolute power. He has absolute power to be with us. And that's what his desire is. He says in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And once that door is opened, it can never be shut again. He tells us in 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so lastly, a brother loving Christian sees Jesus not only as those three things, but then lastly, the promised one. So he's the holy one, he's the true one, he's the mighty one, he's also the promised one. What do I mean by that? Oh, I mean, uh, you, I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. He was told and foretold to Adam. Because of the fall, there would be a redeemer. He was told and then retold from Abraham. Through your lineage, all the nations of the human race are going to be blessed. He was told by King David to whom Jesus ties himself in this passage. I have the keys of David. I sit on the authority on the throne of David. I am the one promised of by David. See, he is the promised one, the lamb who's come to take away the sin of the world. He is the holy one, the true one, the mighty one, and he is the promised one. And that also speaks to us through Revelation because he is the promised one who has made a promise that he is coming again. He's coming to receive his bride, his church, back to himself. So, That is how a brother-loving church, a brother-loving Christian needs to see Jesus. How is a brother-loving church need to then share the gospel? That's the second main point. How how a brother-loving church shares the gospel or how a brother-loving church shares the gospel. Well, in your copy of God's word, you can just move down to the next verse, Revelation 3, 8. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word, and have not denied my name. And so how is a brother-loving church sharing the gospel? How is you as a brother-loving Christian sharing the gospel? The first thing is by the power of the Spirit, not the power of the flesh. It has to be that way. I am reminded by that every single Sunday. You know, I, sometimes uh, the night before usually happens to me. The night before, I'm laying in bed, and I'll, I'll either wake up or I'll have a dream. And I'm like, man, that sermon was great. It was great. And then I'll get up here and I'll preach. And then I'll go home and I'll talk to my wife and I'll say, oh, I didn't feel good about this section or I missed that section or I misspoke here or, or you know, did you get anything out of that because I felt like it fell flat. Well, guess what, pastor? By the power of the spirit, not the power of the flesh. So I could be up here, here praise God, I could be up here like a bumbling idiot don't say amen to that, right? But I could, and I'm sure that I am. And you know what? If God wants to use it, he's going to use it. And I'm so thankful for that. It takes so much weight off my shoulders. And I hope it would take weight off your shoulders. You don't have to know all, all of the, the defense of Tulip by uh, some famous theologian guy. You don't have to know that to be able to witness to people, right? All you have to know is what, what is the gospel? So I want to ask you the question, can you articulate the gospel? Can you share what that is with people? If you're sitting there right now and you're like, well, I think so, but I'm not really sure, let's go have coffee. I'll give you some resources. I'll give you some things to think about. I want to solidify that with you. But it's by the power of the Spirit, not the power of the flesh. Philadelphia was not the biggest, the richest, the, the best church on the block. 
Jesus recognized it's a little power. He says that there. But they have supernatural power, he tells them. Why do they have supernatural power? Because they have Jesus, brother or sister. So if you have Christ, you have all the power you will ever need to witness to anyone, to stand up in the face of temptation, of trial, to make it a defense of your faith. You have it. Why? Because Jesus has given it to you freely. He says he has opened a door and nobody's going to shut it. 1 Timothy 1, 7 says, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Ephesians 3, 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Where's that power? It's within us. So power not only to give away the gospel, but power also to keep. He tells us that too. This power is what sustains us in our salvation, in our faith. It's what helps me get out of bed in the morning. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit then trusted to you. So a brother-loving Christian shares the gospel by the power of the Spirit, not the power of the flesh, but a brother-loving Christian also shares the gospel when they are true to the name of Jesus. Remember, we just talked about how do you view Jesus? Well, this is what I mean then. When we're true to the name of Jesus, not just saying his name. But listen, we all have reasons and times where we're tempted to compromise who Jesus is in our lives. He has to be Savior and Lord. He has to sit on the throne of my heart. I can't have Jesus just as my sidekick to bail me out when I get in trouble. He is holy. He is true. He is sovereign. He's Messiah. He's God. He is the only way. So a brother-loving Christian shares the gospel when he is true to the name of Jesus, meaning we have to call sin, sin. We have to name Jesus as who he is. He loves us enough to take us right where we are, but he loves us enough to not leave us there. We can't compromise because somebody's going to feel, you know, uh, offended or not included or whatever. I mean, Jesus is who he is in all of his fullness. I believe wholeheartedly as Christians, we can share a, a, a true version of the gospel and not minimize his holiness, his righteousness, his call for repentance. I truly believe that. I don't think we have to water down who Jesus is for people who have different proclivities or different lifestyles or different you know, political backgrounds or any of those things. Jesus is who he says he is, and he calls us to share who he is in love. And as a loving Christian sharing the gospel, we can in all confidence be true to the name of Jesus. Thirdly, it's when we are energized by the evangelistic opportunities that he puts in front of us. So a brother-loving Christian shares the gospel when they're engaged and energized by these opportunities. Remember what he says? He says, I have an open door before you. Now, I don't know for sure if this is what he's talking about, but isn't it interesting that they're called the gateway to the east? So Philadelphia is the gateway to the east, right? Meaning that if you wanted to get to the east, where'd you go through? You went through Philadelphia because that's where all the roads combine, right? Paul would often talk about this. Uh, I digress. Let me just give you the scripture. You don't want to hear from me. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go therefore and make disciples. How do we do that? We do that through open doors. We do that by going where Jesus has called us. Paul does talk about this in 2 Corinthians where he says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord. 
So what they could be talking about there is, and what I want to ask you is, where are your open doors? Where do you have an opportunity to share with somebody? And are you excited about that? Are you looking for those doors? Or are you just wandering through life? Sometimes you don't know a door's open unless you jiggle the knob. Are you looking for open doors? Also, Paul knew that this was the case. We ought to know that this is the case for one another. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am a prisoner. Let's just be honest. Some of us have come in contact with some locked doors. Some of those locked doors have three or four padlocks, maybe one of those chains and perhaps evenly a bar over it, you know? You know. But is Jesus not in the business of picking locks? If Jesus could roll a stone away, can he not remove a bar? And so, brother or sister in Christ, we need to be praying and looking for these open doors. You want to see God answer prayer? Pray for some open doors and then look for them. You want to see God work? Pray for open doors and start jiggling knobs in your life. Obviously, I'm using that as an illustration. Don't be weird. Are we praying and looking for these doors to be opened? I believe that we should. And so a brother-loving Christian does those three things, right? We, we are to, by the power of the Spirit, not the power of the flesh, we are to then be true to the name of Jesus and we are to be energized and enthusiastic about these evangelistic opportunities, right? And so third and finally, how does a brother-loving church finish well? How does a brother-loving Christian finish well? Well, You can drop your eyes right down to the next verse in Revelation chapter 3, verse 9. It says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So a brother-loving Christian finishes well by trusting in their adopted position. You know, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Do you know what that means? Satan stands there constantly and says things like, well, you say you are, but are you? Or, well, I know about that thing that nobody else knows, or or, I know about this, or, hey, uh, blah, blah, blah. Accusations. You know. You know what accusations are. But trusting in your adoption, in your position, because he's the holy one. He's the true one, right? If Jesus says... I'm going to take your sin and I'm going to cast it as far as the east is from the west. Then Christian, believe that. If he is going to say, hey, you're redeemed, you're renewed, you are a member of my household, then believe that. Your identity is not in anything other than Jesus. All the rest of the things are add-ons. So I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a pastor, but I am redeemed in Christ Jesus and he is using me in the role of father. I am a son of the most high God who is being used in the role of pastor. I am, are, are you understanding what I'm saying? He tells us that in scripture, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in Galatians 4, 5 through 6, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons 
And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Romans tells us that a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. That's what he's talking about here. These these who claim to be Jews are not because they lie because they weren't adopted in. They're taking for granted. As Christians, are you living out your adoption? A brother-loving Christian finishes well then. If you go to Revelation 3.10, the next verse in your copy of Scripture, it says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And so the second way that a brother-loving Christian finishes well then is by trusting in their Savior's protection. So not only your provision, or your uh, position, I'm sorry, but also his protection. Uh, John 6, 39 says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So here's the deal. Here's what I remind myself in. Here's what I want you to remind yourself in. On the days that I sometimes question my position, am I really adopted? Did I really do those things? You know what I fall, you know what I fall back on? I fall back on Jesus' protection. He has said, if I'm his, I can't, I can't, not that this is a challenge. You can't outsin God's grace. You can't. Again, that is not a challenge. Let me clarify that. What I'm here to tell you is, if he saved me, if it wasn't me in the first place, John can't save himself. If I didn't save me in the first place, and he's adopted me in this position, and yet Satan weasels his way into my mind and says, but is that true? Look at, I don't see the fruit. Look at how you've acted like this. Look at blah, blah, blah. I can still return to Satan and say, hey, all those things are right, buddy. But you know who is victorious? Jesus, because it wasn't dependent on me in the first place. So if he can save me the first time, he's going to keep me saved because he has the power to do those things. And so we can trust in the Savior's protection. He'll lose none of those. And he also said this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's okay that you're a casserole. We're just not baked yet. It's fine. He's still working on us. What do you say? Through all, all uh, I forget that we just sung it, but I forget exactly how it goes, but it's like, all the fires of hell, they're to, they're to burn away the dross. He's refining you. He's making you into a precious stone, a precious metal. You know, di- I don't know if you know this. Diamonds, they don't just pop out of the ground looking all shiny. Did, you knew that, right? Like they get popped out of the, well, they don't pop out. Somebody digs them out and then they're cut up and then they're polished. It takes time and work and labor to get them that way. And by the way, do you know how much money we spend on rocks? Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. You know, God is going to use gold as pavement in heaven? Like, zero value. We're crazy. Anyway, he is faithful, he is true, he is willing and able to protect you. Also then, what this is talking about here is, um, I have so much to talk about and we can't. I'm running out of time. So here's what we're going to do. Ready? I, please don't overwhelm me. I can, only, I can only drink so much coffee in a day. But here's the deal. 
This text, because you have kept my word about the patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try to dwell all those on the earth. Maybe this will be a whole nother sermon. Is there, are Christians going to stay here through the whole tribulation or are going to be raptured out of it? Ready, fight. No, don't really fight. But here's the deal. As you meet in your small groups, this is something to discuss. There's a very good argument for either one. And because of time, I'm not going to tell you where I stand. Anyway, moving on. A loving Christian, a, a, a brother-loving Christian finishes well by watching for their Savior's return. He says in Revelation 3.11, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what I have. I'm sorry, hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. We need to be living in expectation and anticipation. He could come at any moment and we need to be ready one of the things that makes Oregon Trail fun, the game, Oregon Trail, I know I'm speaking to a certain generation of people. One of the things that makes Oregon Trail fun is knowing that eventually you're going to get to Oregon. That's why it's okay that, you know, Birdie dies of a snake boy and, you know, Constance has scurvy or whatever. It's okay because we're looking not just at where we're at on the trail. It's okay because we're looking at where the trail leads. I know that there's people in this room that are going through things right now that I, I, am, I am sorry. But your hope is not in this world. Your hope is in the world to come. Your hope is in your home with Jesus for all of eternity where I, I don't even pretend to understand but I know that it's true because he said it, that he will wipe every tear from every eye, that he will make every crooked path straight, that there will be, I believe, a divine understanding that he will then give to us of why every single wrong thing in our lives happened. We need to be watching for our Savior's return. That's how we finish well. Lastly, a brother-loving Christian finishes well by longing for their reward. See, God wants you to be with him forever. So here's a reference for those of you who don't know about Oregon Trail. I know you'll know this one. One of our family, on my mom's side, one of our favorite movies is called Wizard of Oz. You familiar with that? So now I've hit everybody. If you don't know about Oregon Trail, I know you know about Wizard of Oz. I think it was the first Technicolor movie, right? Or something like that. So Wizard of Oz, what's, what's, what's Dorothy say? There's no place like home. You nailed it. This is what we're longing for. God wants his home to be with us. That's what he says. He wants you to be home. You've heard of these people who go through these natural disasters where their whole house is burned up or is busted apart by tornadoes and they're interviewed and they say to the people who are on the screen, we have nothing left. In Christ, that's not the case for you. You have a home waiting for you. If it were not so, would I tell you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And when I prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you unto myself so that where I am, you may be also. Who said that? Jesus did. 
So a Christian finishes well by longing for their reward, by trusting in the adoption position, by trusting in their Savior's protection, by watching for their Savior's return, and then for longing for that reward, understanding that this world and the things of it should grow strangely dim as we look in the face of our Savior, as we long for that reward. So I guess in closing, what I'd like to say is this. I hope that we can all strive to be like that feebly fervent Philippians. I'm sorry, Philadelphians. It was so good up until then, I ruined it. Let me say it again. I hope that we can strive to be like those feebly fervent Philadelphians. And I am glad that God uses the power of his Holy Spirit and not the power of the flesh. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have redeemed us all All of us in this room who are yours, Lord, we have the guarantee of a future hope that is in you. And I pray that you would help us to be a brother-loving Christian and make up a body of a brother-loving church by applying this letter to ourselves. We thank you for writing it. We thank you for preserving it, that it might feed our souls. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's close.